the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome on board. It is a uh, Tuesday here for the 24th day of September. Trust you're having a good day so far. We've got a pretty busy program for you tonight. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll be talk about making sure you're up to date with your anti-malware and do all of your Microsoft updates on a routine basis, right? Because you want to protect yourself. Cybersecurity is becoming a growing issue. In fact, just reading over the weekend, in the Bay Area, the city of Union City practically shut down to a crawl because they got infected by ransomware over the weekend. Now, police, fire departments, that's all up and running. But city services basically crippled while they deal with this mess. Not only can it be a pain, not only can it be a tool for criminals, but on an increasing basis, the world, the cyber world, is becoming more of a theater of warfare. And coming up in about a half hour tonight, we're going to be talking with Teresa Payton, former White House Chief Information Officer during the Bush administration, who will talk about the growing possibility of using, well, quite frankly, cyber warfare against countries like Iran. Is it really the silver bullet as a option to all-out warfare? We'll talk about that and the increased vulnerability that countries are facing globally. Teresa Payton coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. But let's start, let's start on a little bit more positive note, shall we? We live here in one of the most spectacular places in, well, arguably, if not the world, certainly in the entire country. Think about what makes the Bay Area so livable, that within three, four hours drive, you can be at a local beach, you can go to the desert, you can go water skiing, you can go snow skiing during certain times of year. It is, in fact, our location and our geography, these beautiful natural surroundings such as trees and forests and the rivers and lakes and so on, that makes the place we call home so spectacularly beautiful. And, unfortunately, so spectacularly dangerous. Think of flooding, devastating wildfires, earthquakes. In fact, in just three short weeks, October the 17th to be exact, the Bay Area will mark the 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. That 6.9 magnitude earthquake claimed the lives of more than 69 Bay Areans. And, in some aspects, we're still in the process of recovering. And at the same time, we're going to be marking here on October the second anniversary of the devastating Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa. Lucky to live here, but we need to be aware of the fact that the beauty also has danger lurking inside of it. So then the big question, even as it was announced by PG&E today that they've shut off power in parts of Northern California to 24,000 customers, 
out of concern over grave fire danger. That means they'll be without power for, who knows, two, three days, maybe longer as fire conditions continue to last. Can you imagine what it would be like without electricity? We're still in the wake of an earthquake. How about no running water, no natural gas to cook with? What would you do? Well, to get some insights as to how Californians ought to be better prepared, Steve Conley joins us. Steve is Senior Vice President of Emergency Essentials. And Steve, great to have you with us. Hi, Craig. Thanks for yeah, having me. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I'm raining on everybody's parade when I say, hey, let's talk about good, positive stuff. We do live in a spectacular part of the world, but as I suggest, history and recent events have reminded us that as spectacular as California living might be, it's also spectacularly dangerous. Yeah, I was, uh, when you were describing all the beauty and then all the trouble, I was booking tickets right now to the Bay Area <laughs> because... It is beautiful, yeah. But there are a lot of things going on. 2018 was not a not a great year for California, unfortunately. So it it, it really does pay to be prepared and to be aware of these things. We've historically been told that in event of an earthquake, be prepared to go without essential services for up to 72 hours. That means no running water, no natural gas to heat, to warm our homes, to cook food with, no electricity, which means no refrigeration. But being that you're in the preparedness business, just how practical is that? I mean, in the region like the Bay Area, if we have a devastating earthquake, it would seem to me that it may take um, emergency services more than just two or three days to meet all the needs of all Bay Area and 7 million of us, potentially 9 million, depending upon how widespread the damage might be. Just seems to me that two, three days without essential services might be slightly an underestimate. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Both FEMA and the Red Cross suggest two weeks as a minimum. And we've been in the business for 35 years. And our customers have been through hundreds and hundreds of these disasters, and you know we can say with real certainty that, that 72 hours is not sufficient or having some food in your pantry is not sufficient. Um, you really need to be prepared for at least two weeks. And when we talk about preparation, I mean, that really runs the gambit, doesn't it? I mean, for example, uh, first we have to assume that our home or our dwelling, our apartment, our condo is even inhabitable. If the earthquake happens in July or August, we're probably okay. If it happens in December in the the dead of winter, um, the ability to be able to um, survive outdoors might uh, might be a bit challenging. I suppose there will be shelters set up, but again, uh, how adequate they will be to meet the needs of Bay Areans, you know, only time will tell because we don't know how severe the event is until the actual event happens. And then coupled with that, I have to wonder, when we talk about being, for example, uh, without power, Steve, for say, more than three days what happens to all the food in the refrigerator i mean how how do we go about eating yeah that's right that's right um not just the refrigeration and the food that you have around but water typically stops working with electricity being gone as well and obviously you cannot go (laughs) much past a day or two without water so water is essential you have to have at least a couple of weeks worth of water on hand that may not mean that you have water storage for two years or sorry for two weeks but you should have a way to filter water a lot of times there's water around but it may not be safe to drink without a filter so being being prepared for water and, and you know 
filtering your own and having that on hand is, is essential. Then comes food. You have to have two weeks of food around. It's got to be food that will last for years and years and years because you're not sure when the next disaster will affect you and your family and your neighbors. So having food that stores very well for 20, 25, 30 years is critical. And then having some ability to shelter yourself. You said, you know, maybe they won't have uh, what kind of shelter might they have for people in the Bay Area. Well, the shelter that you need is the one that you have, right? It's the one you can put up in your backyard if your house is unsafe. It's something you can take with you. In fact, the food and the water and the shelter you need to take with you um, and possibly use it in your home as well. So, boy, this this really starts to become sort of multiple layers of complexity. Again, it depends on the nature of the natural disaster, how widespread the severity is, the ability of essential services, uh, water, electricity to be restored. Along with that, um, you might even be looking at a scenario where you have minor injuries that may not escalate to need hospitalization, but you need treatment, but you've got no way to get there because while the car works, uh, suddenly a big hole is opened up in front of your house and you can't back the car out of the driveway. It, it, it really it, it becomes like a forced, forced camping under extreme circumstances, doesn't it? That's right. Not quite as entertaining as camping, but it's very much like that. Um, you know, we just, this story is really um, an interesting illustration. It, just yesterday, one of our customer service uh, team members, Jared, sent me this recording of a customer calling us from Panama City, Florida. And she was making an order, and she mentioned Panama City and that she was recovering from Hurricane Michael. And he said, oh, you know, is everything okay? And she said, no, we're still recovering. She told her story. And, you know, I listened to this recording thinking, oh, my goodness, this is, it's, it's absolutely typical of people to find themselves in the way of some kind of danger in some natural disaster. And they fed their family for 16 days where there was no electricity and no water, but their neighbors didn't have food or water either. These guys had enough, Rebecca and her family had enough water and food to take care of five other families for these 16 days until emergency services arrived and people could move out. And during all that time, they were cutting trees, they were moving debris, they were trying to be able to get out, and so people could come in, they're helping each other. It's just an incredible neighbor story, but a story of someone being prepared and being able to save and help themselves and help their neighbors. It's just an amazing story. And, and, you know, we're going to have to, I think, uh, at the end of the day, when this event happens, and we probably should underscore that, Steve, that we kind of talk about this in vague generalities, the next earthquake, the next major wildfire, as if to suggest that, well, thank goodness the last one happened, that's behind us. But the reality is this could strike at any time. We have long been warned by U.S. Geological Survey, for example, that um, regions of the Bay Area, like the Hayward Fault Line, that is 30 years overdue for a major event, which means it's not a question of if it happens, but when, where, and just how strong. We're going to have to rely not only on each other and and a sense of, you know, helping our neighbors out, but we're really going to have to also be um, self-reliant and self-prepared, aren't we? Absolutely. You know, so I live 100 yards from a fault line that's overdue (laughs) for some kind of activity. And as I thought through that, uh, I thought, okay, I, I have enough, uh, I should, and, and I do have enough 
uh, food and water stored, but I had to start thinking about where I might have it, right? So I have stuff in my basement, but I also put things in my garage that I could, if my house was unstable, I could grab it and go. I could walk right out of the garage with the basics that I would need for a period of time until it was safe to go back into my house and get kind of the, the, the even longer term stuff that I could live off for a month or two or more or enough to share with all of my neighbors. And that kind of preparation, it's worth everyone thinking through that. What will I do about water? Where do I get it if my the pipes aren't working in my house? Uh, how do I contact my neighbors and my family? All of those things we really have to think about. Um, and And People don't want to think about those things, right? They, they're not that fun to think about, maybe like life insurance. But when you have it, you have this piece, you know, that that, that is really um, substantial. It's really beneficial. It feels good to know that I did what I needed to do. I have some things. I'm prepared. And, and you know, at the end of the day, sometimes they are, our discipline is short in this area. Uh, we need to have laws in place that require that we carry insurance, for example, on our automobiles. You know, do you really want to write the check every six months? No. But, you know, in order to maintain your um, legal registration, you need to maintain insurance. Likewise, the lender of your home insists that you have house insurance. And yet, ironically, we tend to kind of think that, well... You know, community services will be there. Fire department will show up if the house catches on fire. You know, if we're without food for a day, we can, you know, raid the pantry, clear out the refrigerator, see what's stockpiled inside of the food pantry. But the reality is, what if it lasts longer than you anticipated? Or if you're like a lot of folks, you go to the food pantry and discover we have three cans of beans and two of them are outdated and maybe a can of creamed corn and some stale potato chips. Is that really going to be enough to care for your family for three, four, five days a week, two weeks? The answer is no. And reliant upon city services, my goodness, as I mentioned here at the beginning of tonight's program, a small community of 75,000 can't even keep their computers up and running because it's a cyber attack. Now, what if that were a major earthquake that took down electrical services, shut down roads, fire department can't get to you, or if they get to you, there's no running water to put out the fire. You had in the moment that it started an opportunity to deal with it, but you just didn't get around to buying the fire extinguisher because it wasn't going to happen to anybody else. Yeah. With me today is Steve Conley, Senior Vice President of Emergency Essentials. There's a great website, by the way, that has all kinds of resources available to you where you can bet get prepared to protect yourself, your family. This is not just a matter of convenience. This could be a matter of literal survival. And if there's an injury and you're not prepared to deal with that, it could even be a matter of life or death. Online at BePrepared.com, bookmark it, BePrepared.com. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. We'll have Steve walk us through some of the basics that we all need to be prepared for the next major event here in the San Francisco Bay Area, the place we love to call home. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. 520, here's an update for you on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with us today is um, 
preparation expert, really emergency expert, Steve Conley with Emergency Essentials. More information available, by the way, a great website and resource at BePrepared.com. That's BePrepared.com. And you know, Steve, I know the Bay Areans and adults, we're smart enough to figure, well, okay, I think there's a, I think there's an extra first aid kit underneath the bathroom sink, and gee, we've got some canned goods inside the pantry, and we, we kind of run the list through our mind of where things are in the house should, quote-unquote, something happen. And while that might be all well and good, in the moment of the emergency, a lot of those sort of casual, I think I know where things are plans tend to fall apart pretty fast, don't they? <laughs> they do. They do. If you could imagine reaching into your pantry and grabbing an armful of, uh, I don't know, breakfast cereals and cans and trying to walk out of your house with that or something, and, and to a shelter it, it through a storm, just wouldn't work. You know, we have the Be Prepared website has hundreds and hundreds of individual food items and gear and water products, but... Our most popular items are kits, things that are all put together by experts for different lengths of time. Um, there's one that we sell the most of called the two-week survival in a pail. And that, that one kit or that one product has two weeks of food, uh, two months' worth of water by, with an industrial water filter, and two different ways to shelter yourself. And if someone, if you needed to leave your house, or whether, whether it was in your backyard or taking it to a shelter, you could grab that one thing and know that you were secure, you were safe, you had the basics for those two weeks. Well, talk about a real added sense of peace of mind, uh, particularly, you know, all of us where we work and where we live are two different places. Um, imagine the frustration if dad is at work and mom and the kids are at home when the event happens and now you're sitting stuck at work, you're across the other side of the bay, you can't get home, and you're frustrated because the phones won't answer, because all the lines are down, you've got no way to communicate with your loved ones, and worse yet, you're wondering, how are they going to survive? Do they have everything that they need in the event of that kind of an emergency? So this is, this is more than just an insurance policy. It's really peace of mind, isn't it? It is. It is. You know that your child could grab that pail and walk right out of the house, your wife, your husband could grab that and walk right out of the house. We have these pails in people's RVs and in their in their trunks of their cars. So they're, it's that convenient. It feels good. It's nice to have peace of mind. And it's, it's not just for you and for your family. It, it feels good to know that you're there for other people as well. And again, you mentioned about the two-week survival in a pail. So th- that's adequate, obviously, for two weeks uh, of time, uh, <laughs> there by the name. How many people does that accommodate for? So it starts with one person, okay. but what we have is uh, add-ons to that, right? So you, you, inside of that bucket, you have all the food you need for two weeks, but you also have the means for cooking that food and rehydrating it. There's two months' worth of water in that filter, so that lets you rehydrate that food. It lets you um, obviously cook it. Uh, it'll let you have hygiene and drinking water for two months. 
So you start adding other food kits onto that for each member of your family, and you can have you know two weeks for every member of your family, or two months worth for every member of your family, or a year's worth. And unlike my uh, my sort of wink wink nod nod suggestion that you just you know go for whatever is existing in the pantry to find out that half of it's expired or things that nobody's really interested in eating, uh, this is actually formulated for a long shelf life. So if you buy the pail today, you're not going to be finding out inside of, you know, what's the normal shelf life of a can canned goods? I don't know, six months, nine months, something like that. And all of a sudden, you don't find yourself in that emergency and find that the food that you thought you were counting on had an expiration date of, you know, five years ago. That's right. 25-year shelf life is, is what we have with our product, and that's a pretty nice insurance policy. Yeah. And and th- th- these pails and a lot of the resources available at BePrepared.com, these have all been assembled by experts in the field, haven't they? Because I can imagine some buffoon like me, I'm going to wind up, if I'm just trying to kind of cobble this together on my own, I'm probably going to wind up forgetting a lot of important things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mentioned earlier, we've been doing this for 35 years. We, we listen to our customers tell us what works and what doesn't, even what tastes good and what doesn't. We have food scientists, we have engineers on staff and have for decades that are we're constantly making sure that our recipes are the most delicious things ever, making sure that our shelf life is as long and stable as possible. We spare no expense in making sure that these things are delicious that they have enough calories and protein to really power you through an emergency, a time when you need more, and um, to make sure that they last for as long as they possibly can. We're leaders in that, in that field, and we're proud of it. You know, the, the irony is that we spend in our normal day-to-day life worrying about things like, am I going to make it to work on time because of the traffic ahead, or uh, whether or not the Niners are going to win the, <laughs> the weekend game, and, and what that's going to mean for, you know, their, their uh, playoff future. Uh, th- these are the things that kind of tend to occupy our minds, and to try and stop down and say, okay, I need to be serious about the reality of where we live, what the risks are, and be prepared, because in that moment, Steve... I guess things like whether or not Netflix is going to carry uh, that great movie that you saw that you'd love to be able to watch at home, those things kind of fade away, whether or not you're getting good throughput on your Internet service. All of that fades away when you're in the middle of a disaster, and now you're just suddenly worrying about how are you going to feed your five-year-old son. Yeah, those first-world problems, they, they fade away pretty quickly. Um, and it doesn't take, ah, that, you know, people's, our imagination doesn't have to be terribly negative and, and we can feel this doom about, about preparing. It really can be this positive, energetic thing, and it doesn't have to cost much at all. These, you know, some people, if you do the math, some of these meals cost the same, if not a little bit less, than meals that you're making on your own, and yet they have that kind of a shelf life. They give you that peace of mind. And having those things around you is a great comfort. It's a great feeling. And not only does it give you a great sense of comfort, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we we have a sense of stewardship over our families. And so much as you make sure that you have health insurance in place, though you don't expect to get cancer, you have fire insurance for your home, yet you don't expect it to burn down anytime soon, you take those steps, you take the necessary precautions so that if something happens, your family will be protected. Well, this is the same thing here. And the reality is, as we sit here, as they say, just a few weeks away from the 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake, we started the day with news that 
that 24,000 PG&E customers in the North Bay are without power for the short term, at least, because of concerns of high fire danger at the moment. Um, you know, we're, we're just surrounded by many of these reminders. So instead of putting this off as something you're going to do one of these days, maybe today's the day that you take the first step to make sure that you are prepared. Great website with wonderful resources available. They've done all of the hard work for you. They've done the thinking for you, essentially. You just go online, determine how much you need for how large of a family you have, and right, boom, right there it is. Uh, whether you're being prepared for an earthquake or a fire or a flood, any other kind of natural disaster, you want to make sure to be prepared. Information available on the web, beprepared.com. It's easy to remember, beprepared.com. Not only great advice, but an easy website, beprepared.com. Stephen Conley, Vice President of Emergency Essentials. Steve, thanks so much for being with us and, uh, and uh, kind of educating us once again and reminding us about the essential steps that we need to take to prepare for our families. Thank you, Craig. That's take my care. Pleasure. There's Steve Conley with Emergency Essentials. Good reminder, I think, any time of the year, but particularly this time of the year, we have all of these kind of odd anniversaries in September, October with fires and things of that sort. So we thought we'd take a moment to uh, help you be prepared. All right, 534, look at traffic. From the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation as we continue on. I mentioned at the top of the program about um, troubles of here locally, Union City, that was the victim of a ransomware attack over the weekend. And while essential services, police fire are up and running, um, basically they shut down City Hall for a day and a half. And the city is continuing to struggle to recover from all of that. Cyber warfare of a sort is becoming more and more popular methodology used not only by criminals out there seeking to do damage, but but even by nation states. As our next guest helps us understand, this could be um, a new frontier in order to deal with rogue nations um, as maybe an alternative to traditional warfare. Teresa Payton was former chief information officer during the Bush administration. She is one of the nation's leading experts in cybersecurity and IT strategy. As I mentioned, under President George W. Bush, she served as the first female chief information officer at the White House, overseeing IT operations for both POTUS and his staff. She has been uh, featured on television, and uh, perhaps you've uh, even seen her on Hunted, uh, which aired CBS Wednesday nights, and um, is currently the founder and president of FortalessSolutions.com. And uh, we appreciate, uh, Teresa, so much you taking time to be with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. So, you know, at a low level, we're all familiar with uh, malware attacks, things of this sort. We probably all, at one 
point or another in our online experience had our sh- computer shut down or had a lack of access to email because of uh, something that got accidentally downloaded onto our computer. Either we went to a, a, a bad site or opened up an email attachment that we shouldn't have. And increasingly, we're seeing criminals using this as a means of ransomware. And uh, that's being met with, I think, uh, sadly, some degree of success on their behalf. But to the broader degree, this whole arena of um, cyberspace and, and specifically how cyber attacks can be used as not only a means of creating trouble for all of us, but, but more specifically as a means of potentially changing the terms of engagement with rogue nations or enemy states. Talk to us a bit about all of this, and particularly in view of the events that transpired over the last couple of weeks with the drone attack on the Saudi Arabian oil fields. Yeah, sure. You know, I, the the cyber attacks between Iran, the United States, and our allies have only been sort of increasing over the years. And I often say if you want to know whether or not some of these nation states are grumpy about their current state of affairs, look at the cyber attacks on citizens, businesses, and our infrastructure, North Korea, China, some of the Eastern European groups that do sort of kind of consumer fraud. And then, of course, we look at Iran. And what's interesting is is if you kind of back up just a little bit, um, you look at Stuxnet, which hit in 2010, and it hit the, the subterfuges of Iran's nuclear arsenal. Um, then you fast forward to 2012, and there was a cyber attack launched against of the Saudi Aramco company. A lot of people said at the time it could have been Iran learned a lot from the cyber attack of Stuxnet against them and turned around and used it against Saudi Aramco. Then you kind of fast forward to 2019. Um, In in between that time, people may or may not remember, Attorney General uh, Loretta Lynch under the Obama administration actually unsealed, this is kind of interesting, unsealed some indictments and actually made them public against Iranians who had seven Iranians who had done distributed denial of service attacks against American banking industry and had tried to take over the Bowman Dam, which is near New York City. So you fast forward to the summer of 2019. So Iran downed a U.S. drone in June. The Washington Post reported that in June the U.S. attacked and took offline the databases that control Iran's rocket and missile launchers that are managed by the IRGC, which is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And now we fast forward to the attack on Saudi Aramco using drones guiding missiles. So the question is, will we launch a cyber attack? Do they want us to because they want to have an excuse to do something else? And here's where we stand. We have lack of a rules of engagement around when a country has a right to strike first or strike back. And so your guess is as good as mine what the United States decides to do next here. Yeah, not only what the United States decides to do next, but even some of these rogue nations. I mean, let's face it, this is a a potentially pretty powerful tool that, uh, you know, I, I guess has in a sort of warped sense, a quick capacity to sort of, um, how should we say this, uh, Teresa, level the playing field. I mean, look, for example, at a country like uh, North Korea. You know, they talk a good game. Yes, we think they have nuclear weapons. 
we know that their air force is is largely a bunch of old biplane antiques that you know practically date back to the old Soviet Union era. Um, how effective could they wage a war and sustain one? Uh, you know, quite questionable, uh, particularly if they're going against a world power like the United States. However, in the cyber warfare arena. You know, it doesn't take much to have a decent Internet connection or in a room full of kids that love to get in there and hack, and they could suddenly be on an even playing field with us if they're able to, for example, shut down a bunch of our power plants. Yeah, they absolutely could. And they don't just have to develop their own capabilities there. There are uh, unethical hackers for hire or sort of uh, mercenaries, if you will, who will do the bidding of anybody if the pay is right. And, uh, and they're not just hiding on the dark web, making themselves available. They say it out in the open. They're happy to launch distributed denial of service attacks for free, uh, to launch malware, uh, to compromise different systems, to steal data. So you also have, if you haven't built out enough of a capability as a nation state and as a military power, you could just have the mercenaries who are working on your behalf that you're paying. This is really where, from a proactive strategy, if you think about even, um, you know, kind of back in the Reagan era, era, the whole, like, Star Wars defense, right, sort of that we're going to build a shield, so even if you build nuclear weapons, we're going to have a shield, and you're sort of creating this arms race, if you will, and, uh, you know, kind of our digital weapons are better than your digital weapons, and it doesn't matter how much money you spend on this. It, so we could put up a front and actually say, look, we have a lot of capabilities and there's a lot of things that we could do to your infrastructure. Why don't we sit at the table and actually have a negotiation here? My other recommendation is as a country, and some of this we're doing and some of it we need to kind of up our A game is, we need to be doing some digital geofencing, really looking at the physical geographies of Iran and their critical infrastructure and then creating digital circles around those and understanding the signals around those, the communication signals and the digital footprints and traffic, and let them know we're watching you. We also need for ourselves, for our own protection, is something I call, you know, kind of digital tripwires and kill switches in place. So if Iran or other rogue nation states decide to attack us, we could actually flip these kill switches and cordon them off so that they can't you know, make their way through critical infrastructure. And I think, you know, one of the best things that we can do is to basically show them you don't want to go down this path because we will respond in kind or we will respond with greater force than you could ever met out of measure. In the meantime, we need to be practicing digital disasters for the worst. And the good news is, just for people listening, that actually happens on a very regular basis. Both the private and the public sector get together and practice lots of different types of digital disasters, including nation states attacking energy, water, transportation, financial services. If you've just joined us, uh, an honor today to have with us 
a former chief information officer for the Bush administration, Teresa Payton. Uh, Teresa is now with FortalessSolutions.com, and we're we're talking about, well, quite frankly, uh, not only the possibility of, of sort of upping the ante in dealing with rogue states like Iran, like a North Korea, uh, through the arena of cyber war, but we're also talking both the positives and the negatives to all of this. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. When we come back, could something like this be a viable alternative to send a message to a rogue state like Iran without actually putting any lives at risk? That, as our conversation with Teresa Payton continues. Traffic right now, 10 minutes away from the hour from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Teresa Payton with me today, former White House Chief Information Officer. She is currently the CEO of the industry-leading cybersecurity consulting company, Fortalis Solutions. More information available, by the way, on the web at FortalisSolutions.com. Uh, Teresa, there's a fascination to all of this in that, as we see even on the heels of the events of a couple of weeks ago with the attack on the Saudi oil fields, um, certainly modern technology like drones creates an increased level of vulnerability. But with cyber technology, I'm wondering if there is also an increased opportunity to maybe send a message in return without really escalating things to the level of war and certainly by sparing the potentiality of there being victims, either military or civilian. Um, From a practical standpoint, um, we've seen cyber warfare put to place by rogue countries like uh, Iran. Uh, You mentioned them wiping out the computers at the Saudi uh, Aramco. Um, Certainly there was an attack on American banks, a denial-of-service attack uh, here recently. Um, Is is this becoming perhaps a, a viable method by which a message can be sent without creating severe risk to civilian populations? You're really spot on there. I mean, when sanctions don't work and diplomacy hits a dead end, oftentimes in the past, the next option that you had was to consider some type of military action or some type of show of force. And now cyber can be that alternative to having to deploy troops or send in the, you know, send in the infantry or even dropping bombs or even sending drones, whether they're armed or unarmed drones. So it can be a very interesting tool in the arsenal. The problem is it's a very immature tool compared to everything else that we've used. We have centuries of international accords and lessons learned from terrible wars Uh, We have decades for some of the kind of the more modern approaches, and drones have even been around longer than sort of the cyber attacks that can be deployed by nation states and by the U.S. and our allies. But it definitely is something in our arsenal, and it is something that we want to be careful because you can set off an unknown chain reaction in the form of both kinetic and cyber responses. And sometimes when you launch something, you can't always target and control it. So, for example, Stuxnet, although the intended target were the Iran subterfuges, it actually ended up um, infecting 
14 different control systems run by the Siemens Corporation. Now, they were able to actually counterbalance those and thankfully not have major damages at other locations. But there are sort of some unintended consequences. It's almost like saying, I'm going to create a virus in a lab and I'm only going to infect a couple people with it. You know, once you infect one person and have patient zero, it's really hard to control who else gets infected. And cyber attacks can be somewhat that way. So I, I would say we really want to understand and have a great offensive strategy and leverage that in negotiations and then have that weapon in our arsenal should we need to use it. This is, um, as I think you're suggesting, not exactly a razor precision uh, <laughs> uh, methodology here. I mean, for example, as you suggest, you can you can be successful at maybe you know deploying malware that could be remotely controlled. Your intention is to shut down, say, a nuclear reactor, or a nuclear power plant, to leave a country offline with no electricity. And what if by accident, instead of shutting it off, you shut off their capacity to control it? Now you know uh, an overheat condition uh, comes about, and they can't shut it down. And suddenly, you have unwittingly unleashed a potential potential nuclear event uh, on the nation or on the world, for that matter, when that really wasn't your intention. Yeah, you just have to be so careful, and you have to really work through a lot of different scenarios. It's it's not the same as saying we're going to have a sharpshooter who aims at a specific target, and they either hit the target or not. It, it's more... I, I like in cyber attacks, too, you know, although you try to have precision... There can be unintended consequences and fallout, and it can operate more like a flu-like virus than sort of a sharp shooter with a precision target. At the end of the day, does this become a tool that's more effective, in your opinion, Teresa, if the enemy is unaware of your capacity? And I ask that because, you know, loose lips sink ships, as the old saying goes. Uh, and, And in recent years, there has been more sort of, at least in my opinion, public comment about certain things that we can do in the cyber realm that, for me, I wonder if it wouldn't have a greater impact if it was unanticipated by the enemy. I I think it could be a little bit of both. I think it's good to let the enemy know we're watching you. We have capabilities. Let Let us give you a couple of examples of what we could do if we chose to do so. And so just be aware. And then there are other capabilities that should be developed that should be kept covert, uh, that should not be discussed in the media by politicians or the press, uh, just so that, again, let's keep the enemy always guessing. Finally, I mentioned about the um, challenges being faced currently by a local municipality here with a ransomware attack that they're in the process of responding to. Uh, give us a quick uh, thumbnail sketch, a snapshot, if you would, in terms of what um, uh, Fortalis Solutions is offering for companies that want to beef up their cybersecurity to protect themselves from beca- potentially becoming a victim? Sure, absolutely. You know, first of all, um when you're a victim of any type of cyber attack, including ransomware, don't feel like you're alone and don't feel like you you didn't do the right thing and you did something wrong. You're a victim of a crime and you need to remember that. Um, it's one of the few areas that we still actually blame a victim for being the victim of a crime is, is in cyber crime, which amazes me. Um, but the other thing is there's a couple of strategies. If you have not been a victim yet, One of the things you want to do, and you can do this on your own, but we also help companies do this, is actually create a playbook. Just like you have a playbook for 
what if an earthquake hits or what if there's, you know, a hurricane or some type of either natural disaster or man-made disaster, you need a playbook for ransomware. You need to ask yourself a couple of key questions. Will I ever pay? My goal would be to help you not pay because we don't want to fund cyber criminals. Oftentimes ransomware funds other much more heinous crimes, um, and this is a way to actually fund human trafficking, terrorism, and other crimes that are just absolutely horrible and just unspeakable. Um, and so our goal would be to help you not pay, to understand under what circumstances would you pay, and how will you pay? Do you have a cryptocurrency wallet? Do you have an insurance company that would do the payment? So having that playbook in advance can be incredibly helpful. But if you are um, a victim of ransomware, one of the first things you want to do is don't be embarrassed. Actually let your local FBI office know they may actually have a key, depending on the type of ransomware you have. They may have actually figured out the key. You may not have to pay. You may be able to get to the key from the FBI. There's also an international project, which is also producing keys for ransomware, called um, No More Ransomware, which is really helpful. But in the event that you do, then a company like mine and other companies can help you navigate how to restore your backups, how to make sure you don't accidentally reinfect yourself, and how to determine whether or not the bad guys are also doing other things, such as using your systems to mine cryptocurrency to actually fatten their own wallets. So that's the type of work that we do. We put our arms around, you know, the, the customer, the victim of this terrible crime. Um, we come up with a game plan, and we work to get them up and operational as soon as possible. But if they haven't been a victim yet, and I hope they never will be, it's a terrible thing to go through. We really try to help companies find a very affordable, uh, pragmatic resiliency plan and a playbook that hopefully they'll never need. But if they are a victim, they have the playbook. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. And, uh, you know, what's the old uh, adage, uh, forewarned is forearmed. Maybe maybe, maybe someone makes a cold call on Union City right now because they're, they're in a world hurt. Teresa Payton, I sure appreciate uh, the insights and uh, helping to all of us to not only better understand the, the potentiality in which that um, cyber warfare can be used as an effective tool, ultimately protecting the United States, and a reminder of the warning to all of us about how we need to be prepared because you never know when we as an individual or as a company might potentially be the victim. Teresa Payton, information available, FortalessSolutions.com. That's FortalessSolutions.com. Let's get a look at traffic. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.